This is FinTech Takes, the podcast keeping you in the loop on all the latest FinTech trends, news, and ideas. I'm Alex Johnson, creator of the FinTech Takes newsletter, your host and self-confessed FinTech nerd. Let's go. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Bank Nerd Corner, everyone's favorite podcast, uh, a podcast that is not too long, uh, despite what uh, some of its hosts and co-hosts may sometimes feel. I am joined by my delightful co-host for this podcast, Kia Hazlitt. Kia, how are you? Hey, good. How are you? Did you have a good Thanksgiving? You know, it was good. It was good. My brother hosted it at his house, and it was his first time hosting Thanksgiving. Oh my so, God. did you um, give him feedback at the end of the evening? You know, the feedback probably was more appropriate to give to my parents because they did most of the actual work. He more was just providing like a house for mm-hmm. all of that work to happen mm-hmm. in. So we sort of had to divide that up. But I thought he did a good job, like the social aspect of hosting and making sure everyone felt comfortable and kind of trying to mix all the different groups because there Mm -hmm. were some friends, there was some of my wife's family, there was my family. So it was kind of a whole combination of things. There were lots of little kids. So um, it was good. It was a good event. How was yours? It was good. I went to Atlanta to hang out with a friend whose husband is in residency and was going to be working most of the weekend. I had like a pretty hot take and I I see you're wearing a hoodie today. I mentioned (laughs) that I don't like hoodies and I don't think people should wear hoodies, but someone at the, and it was too, uh, most of the people at this Thanksgiving were wearing casual to business, casual clothes, which I have also separately said I don't like at Thanksgiving. Right. That's another. And right. So no hoodies, no business casual at Thanksgiving, but someone at that Thanksgiving was wearing a hoodie and heard me say this (laughs) and I had to eat it so bad. Like Uh... normally I just get to make my little funny jokes on Twitter and then not have to look anyone directly in the eye when I'm making it. So did you make this joke at the dinner too, or did I, they see like it on Twitter? It was like after dinner. Like it was like a living room, dining room situation. Mm. I think I have a voice that people can hear really easily. <laughs> um, I think so, that's true. I think that's true. But I did hear, you know, other than the person being really miffed, potentially, you know, lightly A little offended, upset maybe. Yeah, sure. The, everyone else was laughing, and I heard later that that was the highlight of Thanksgiving. So I, <laughs> so everyone is welcome that I provided the hottest take of the evening. Very nice. Very nice. Just in brief, summarize your argument against hoodies. So I think, one, people have too many of them. And I think in general <laughs> that you don't need as many hoodies as you accumulate. Okay. Two, I don't think that design-wise the hood plus kangaroo pocket combination is Mm. one that is utilized to its fullest extent that it justifies having it. Most people, if you need something on your head, you could wear a coat that has a hood or you could wear a hat that has a hood. You don't need to wear this sweater that has a hood. The other thing too is I think they, because you put your hands in the pockets and then you probably like pull your hands down, Mm. it actually totally unshapes the hoodie. I was doing some research on the history of hoodies. It looks like they are often (laughs) oversized because you would wear like your football pads underneath and then go outside and and warm up. And then you would take off your hoodie when you get warm. And I'm just going to go ahead and say like 98% of hoodie wearing is not related to like wearing your football pads and going outside and working out. And actually, as someone who has to run outside when it's cold, right. you know, I have this actual distinct problem, but I managed to avoid it wearing without pullover hoodies. I think zip-up hoodies are fine. I think you don't have the like structural problems. And I also think they're a little bit closer to jackets. 
I also yeah. think I've been overexposed to the Midwest culture of wearing a hoodie when you should be wearing a jacket. And that mm. personally infuriates me. So mm. I would just encourage like, you don't have to abandon your hoodies, but try to like go without wearing them for a month and just see where you end up gravitating towards. I think sweaters are underrated and sweatshirts yeah. are underrated. Yeah. Cardigan for men, try it, try it out. Sure. I like a cardigan. Yeah. I like a cardigan. So that was my very, <laughs> I know we're not going to try to take an hour, but I just took a couple of minutes to uh, no, piss no. everyone off on this podcast. Well, I mean, like Kia's fashion corner is probably like another segment we'll need to add to this. Cause you have a lot of like sartorial thoughts, which I didn't necessarily know going in. I don't think I knew that about what I don't think I knew <laughs> is that my opinions are not shared by everyone else. And so when I share them, they get some responses that people well, get in their feelings about stuff. I, I mean, people have strong feelings about outfits in particular. So on the hoodies thing, I'm with you, I think, generally. Like, I love a zip-up hoodie because, like, the oh, pockets make underrated. sense. Yes. Yeah, like, if you're wearing something that's cool underneath, you can kind of show a little bit of that. You can, like, do a mm -hmm. layering effect. So I totally. like that. The one thing I'll say, well, the other thing about hoodies that's kind of weird is I've never been a big fan of the, like, wearing a hood for warmth. Like, if it's cold, and this okay. is maybe a Montana thing, but, you like, you wear a hat, right? Like, if it's cold, yeah. you wear a hat. And if you don't, you just don't need anything. Like, the hood is a way to keep warm has never made sense now it can be like mm -hmm. a look or a fashion or a style but like as a way of doing that that's never made a lot of sense to me but the one counterpoint to all of this is i swear some of the most comfortable like warmer clothing yeah they just happen to make as sweatshirts and so <laughs> it's kind of a problem with the manufacturing where it's like this is like the softest material mm -hmm. it has mm -hmm. a really cool like design on the front like they put a lot of energy into making hoodies desirable. And so I'm not not with you. I think they should do that, but they need to like direct their energy elsewhere because some of my favorite clothes are hoodies, not because they're hoodies, but because of other attributes. Does that make sense? Yes, but I think sweatshirts are going to really scratch that itch for you. I think sweatshirts are, <laughs> sweatshirts are really close to being a hoodie without having the hood and the kangaroo pocket. And so they fit a little bit better. You can even put, you have more space on real estate on the front to put like cool designs. Designs, yeah. yeah okay, so yeah. sweatshirts, this sweatshirt concept mm. you're talking about. All right, I'll yeah, look, look into that. Up. I will look into that. All right, we've definitely blown through our budget for uh, small talk at the beginning of the podcast. As always, we are going to recap a few headlines from the last month or so of banking news since the last time we spoke. And then we'll get into some sort of questions that we have. Key, are you ready for my first bit of news? Yeah, hit me. Okay, this is a little bit more on the fintech side. So this is Kia Hazlitt, fintech editor, not Kia Hazlitt, banking editor, though banks are very happy about this. News. I think we'll talk about banks later. But yes, yeah, we will. We, 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 have some, we have some bank stuff coming. Um, so on the fintech front, the CFPB proposed new rules that would allow them to oversee big tech companies and other providers of digital wallets and payment apps. So for some background, under Dodd-Frank, the CFPB has the authority to supervise non-bank entities that are considered to be, in quotation marks here, a larger participant of a market or other consumer financial products or services. The CFPB has been pretty aggressive in using this authority to essentially kind of ring fence and bring into the regulatory perimeter large participants in other areas of the market that they feel have a significant role to play as it relates to the potential for consumer harm. So this has included the consumer reporting industry, as the credit bureaus well know, consumer debt collection, student loan servicing, 
and international money transfers. So the, I guess, fifth of those sort of large participant categories that they're going to carve out some room to supervise is going to be big tech companies and providers of digital wallets and payment apps. So essentially, the proposal would apply this label, this larger participant label, to any non-bank company that facilitates more than 5 million payment transactions per year. And these entities would be subject to the same supervisory examinations that banks and credit unions and those other large participants that I mentioned before are subject to. As I hinted earlier in my introduction to this topic, banks were very happy about this news. I think you could probably comb through the entire history of all of the press releases that the CF, uh, the CBA, Consumer Bankers Association, has ever put out. And you could count probably on one hand, maybe not even with that many fingers, the number of press releases that were positive about something that the CFPB has done. But this was one of them. They were thrilled that the CFPB is going to be trying to level the playing field and put some more scrutiny and regulatory work on top of these large non-bank providers. However, fintech companies and big tech companies were not as happy. Some of them are already being supervised by the CFPB. So Mm -hmm. companies like a Block or a PayPal, they're already being supervised by the CFPB, I think under the international money transfer sort of exemption that they've already carved out for themselves. But uh, it's been reported in the news that this would bring an additional 17 companies into the fold for ones that would be facing uh, scrutiny from the CFPB. That would certainly include companies like Apple and Google, who I think are Mm -hmm. pretty central to the target that the CFPB has in mind here. But it would also likely include some companies like, for example, they talk specifically in the proposed rules about crypto. So I think any company that facilitates either P2P payments or using crypto as a payment mechanism would be included if the number of transactions was high enough. So think someone like Coinbase. I'm a little unclear still if some of the pay in for buy now pay later providers like a Klarna or an Affirm would be included. My hunch would be that they would be. And then I think if you were to stretch the definition of wallet that was in the proposal, and I read the proposal last night, or at least large chunks of it, you could, I think, make the argument that it might include some infrastructure providers that are playing sort of a somewhat customer-facing role in facilitating mm-hmm. uh, stored value payments. So think about like bank-to-bank payments via something like Stripe Link or maybe even Plaid, or smaller sort of wallet as a service provider, someone like an Anza. So I think it's possible it could extend that far. I did get confirmation that it will not include Delta Airlines and their mileage program. It does not include Starbucks, which is everybody's favorite example of a bank that's not a bank. So it does definitely draw some lines around who's not included, but going to bring some new companies in. And I guess my question for you first, Kia, is what do you think about the CFPB sort of adding these companies to their list of folks that they're going to be regularly supervising? I'm pretty interested in this, Not maybe not in the actual specifics of the proposal itself and your work to figure out who's supervised and not supervised. I'm really interested and congratulations to CFPB for figuring out how to supervise companies that don't have a bank charter and have figured out kind of the back door to mm-hmm. supervision, which is, you know, the, you know, banks get to make payments and banks have all these privileges associated with payments and they get to make money off of payments and they mm-hmm. get all this data from payments. And the 
supervisory parameters very clear for banks and who supervises banks. And it has not been clear for some of these pretty big companies. Yeah. So and it's funny to think that like, man, is this how crypto gets regulated? Um, yeah. If they can't get the SEC and the CFTC to agree on anything, is it a commodity? Is it like mm-hmm. a security? I don't know. It's a payment. They're <laughs> so, making payments. Right, right, right. Yeah, um, yeah. So you're happy to, that. <laughs> if you have the ability to send crypto, they were very specific about defining funds in the proposal. Mm-hmm. And funds is not like dollars. It's any type of stored value for a consumer. And so they specifically did lump crypto in. And, you know, if if you're providing an app that allows you to send crypto to someone else, so P2P payment functionally, Mm -hmm. you'd be included if you're above that 5 million transactions a year threshold. Right. And so it's just, you know, I think there's always been kind of like, remember Google was going to have like a bank account or a Google wallet uh, that was going to be powered by banks. Amazon has like you know, there's always been concern about Amazon getting a bank charter. There's been concerns about non-banks like Walmart getting a bank charter. Yeah. And I think, you know, some of those efforts have been blocked by the banking industry. I think some of those efforts, it has been shared that you really don't want to be subject to the Bank Holding Company Act if you're not really wanting to be a bank. And so it is just so interesting to think about this activity, the facilitation of this activity that actually has been pretty dominated by non-banks mm-hmm. and as being the back door for the regulation. And I'm kind of like, I don't know exactly what CFPB supervision is like and how it differs from the prudential bank regulators' um, mm-hmm. supervision. So that's going to be a really interesting distinction. But it is funny to think that like, oh man, I don't know if you guys knew when you were starting these payments facilitation for customers, what that like down the road you were going to be subject to the CFPB. And I don't know if they would have made a different choice knowing what they know now. Yeah, well, I'm glad you brought that up, actually, because that was my number one takeaway from it as well is payments specifically is one of those areas that's kind of funny because from like a bank perspective, it's, oh, hey, what a great source of non-interest income, right? And so, you know, we can collect fees, we can process these payments, it's transactional, you know, we can sort of try to optimize our stack in order to generate the most you know, profits possible. I mean, like, it's a very nice hedge against sort of macro conditions. And so from like a bank perspective, it's just another business that's kind of a nice part of their diversified business model. It's one of the three things that makes banks special is the facilitation of payments. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So like from a bank perspective, cool. We understand the value. I think people don't necessarily spend a lot of time thinking about what the value payments provides to non-banks, right? Because Mm -hmm. the one thing with payments is it's not the like highest margin business in the world. And so if you are in the business of facilitating payments and you're not a bank, obviously you're still working with a bank to Mm -hmm. do that because you have to. And it's likely if it's running on the card rails that you might have other mouths to feed involved in that process as well. And so you're already sort of dividing up your margins in a way that's not going to be crazy attractive. So it's usually not primarily a moneymaker. The money is nice. But like when I look at big tech companies and their strategies around payments, it's much more about, hey, can we have someone just glued to their device all the time? Can we make our ecosystem and our products that much more engaging and that much more important to our consumers' lives. And in driving that engagement with consumers, can we generate a lot more proprietary data 
which we can then use to do all the other things that we do, whether it's lending or, you know, trying to do like advertising. I mean, you mentioned Amazon before. I was trying to think about if Amazon would be included in this. And the conclusion I came to at least was I think they probably will, not because of a specific like digital wallet that they offer to consumers, but more because of the Amazon Pay button that they enable and allow other merchants to take advantage of. That's a stored payment credential that they manage on behalf of their customers that's going to be used to buy things from other merchants. That would be included in this, right? And so I think, you know, if you were to ask someone like an Amazon, like, hey, would you have done, you know, pay with Amazon as a mechanism to sort of further spread your tentacles out outside of your own walls and generate more data and maybe use that to spin up your advertising business, which is now a very profitable part of Amazon's overall business. They probably wouldn't have said yes if they knew it was going to come with this level of supervision. So I do think it might sort of shake up the Etch-A-Sketch there a little bit in terms of like, if you're doing... If you're big tech and you're thinking about payments or you're a company that's looking at like embedded payments or embedded mm-hmm. finance, this might change the calculus a little bit. Yeah. It is kind of interesting to think that payments for non-banks has been just such a feels like kind of a gimme. And now there are kind of some costs, regulatory costs associated with it. I don't know. Also, once the CFPB gets into your non-bank. If, you know, I don't know kind of where the supervisory parameter then ends. Where I, will, I'm so glad you mentioned that. Look at, yeah, right? I, I so um, the first of probably many analogies that I use, but like it's very like law enforcement with exigent circumstances where it's like, oh, hey, you know, someone called 911. We're going to have to break down the door to this house. And then as you go into the house, you see, hey, there's some cocaine over there and there's a firearm that I wonder mm-hmm. if it's licensed properly. Yeah. And you see all these other things that weren't the reason that you were able to go in. But once right. you see them, mm-hmm. then you have the ability to take action on them. And the CPB did specifically talk in their proposal about UDAP is going to be like one of the things, obviously, that they focus on. Yeah. And UDAP is like a very broad tool, right? And so I do, that's the other thing I would be concerned about if I was these big tech companies is if you're doing other non paymentsy things, but that might generate some UDAP concerns, it's not like outside the realm of possibility that that's going to end up sort of getting swept into this as well. And I, I think this ties into one other area that I've noticed with the CFPB recently, which is they've been doing a lot of things like, for example, around the use of like big data and algorithms for underwriting. So they're all Mm -hmm. about like AI and big data and, you know, surveillance capitalism and all of these things. And they always sort of link it back to the data that big tech might have on you and how they use that to make decisions about you. And most of what they've done so far has been well, we're going to send these companies some questions. We're going to poke around here. Maybe we're going to have non-bank lenders, you know, be more specific in their adverse action notices, which is Mm -hmm. something that we talked about last time. But it has always felt to me like sort of a way for the CFPB to go, we don't know what's going on inside these companies, but our suspicion is there's bad things happening. And so we need to find kind of clever ways to sort of try to generate evidence that bad things might be happening that might allow us to kind of dig in further. This is a different way of doing that because they're already going to be inside these companies. And so, you know, they will have a different, more, I think, direct supervisory way to look at what some of these companies are doing. And, you know, if you know anything about Rohit Chopra, 
he's very naturally suspicious of big tech companies. He just mm-hmm. is. And so the ability for him to get inside Apple, as an example, and to kind of poke around, I think that's probably sort of a driving motivator here. Yeah, we haven't really talked about this, but I've actually been really fascinated by the supervisory parameter. I like to think of it as like kind of a porous border (laughs) and how regulators have used banks to enact oversight of non-bank partners Mm -hmm. and how now, you know, it it looks like payments might be, again, a way that a regulator Mm -hmm. will be able to enact supervision. And I'm kind of just fascinated by the expansion or the shrinking of, or like, you know, this big net of what's getting drawn in. And, you know, the CFPB is kind of building its philosophy around like, who do consumers need to be protected from financially? And, you know, for a while, it was probably pretty easy to determine the parties that or the businesses Mm -hmm. um, or the industries. And now Mm -hmm. it's getting a lot harder to figure out. And I don't know if that's because in the absence of explicit regulation, a lot of non-banks started doing bank-like things, hence, you know, why I'm even on this podcast to talk mm-hmm. about. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I think now there is probably more activities will be a way to be to get into the parameter. It is not the charter itself that puts you on one side of the line or the other. Yeah, no, that's right. And it's it is interesting because like I think the international money transfers was the first one where they sort of expanded the regulatory perimeter using this sort of exemption or power that they have under Dodd-Frank. And that was the first one that kind of pulled a few of the fintech companies in like a PayPal or Wise or companies like that. And I think that was the first time where they're like, whoa, okay, this is how this is going to work now. And I think the CFPB, you know, they, that was kind of a test balloon and now they're going to do this. But like, there's absolutely no reason to expect that they won't find some new category of fintech or big tech that they can't quite get bank-like to with this one. activity. Yeah, <laughs> bank like activity. Guys, we had to figure out if airline miles are stored value. I like, looked into it. I looked into it, and they were pretty careful about finding a way from that one. But like, there's no reason like, they can't go back to it. You know, the stored value regulation, or like, I mean, the that would just be the craziest application to me. I, I totally. love it. when people the inflation and deflation of those points happen all the time. A regulator does not need to be involved. In this. Well, can like, I tell you? I'll tell you no this: no consumer protection. I like, will tell you this: that's your I- fake money from your <laughs> fake bank. Sorry, right. No, no, no. Well, no, I mean, it's funny that you say that because in the proposal, I was reading through it and they were defining what's a consumer payment and what's not a consumer payment. And they specifically said, if it's your own stored value for a merchant that your customers use to buy stuff just from you, not from another mm-hmm. merchant, it's not included. But they went on like a whole like multiple paragraph thing where they talked about why that still is a consumer finance thing. So it's Ooh. not included in this proposal, but they, it was almost like they were writing it to Dick Durbin specifically. They were like, mm-hmm. Dick, just so you know, we can look into this and we may in the future. It's just not included in this proposal. It was that jumped out to me as like, oh, Absolutely okay, not. so they might circle back to that. So if they do, Kia, I'll let you rant about that uh, when that eventually happens. But until <laughs> then, do you want to jump money. us fake jump yeah. us to okay. our next story? Okay, so this is not explicit news item. It has more of a rant, but okay. I was reminded of it recently in part because of a collaboration you were involved in with Simon Taylor and Jason Mikula yeah. um, about SoFi's earnings. And every single time... I think about this, it's my number one question, which is why doesn't SoFi report their earnings like a bank? My first question we have to start out with is, Mm. is SoFi a bank? And so- So yes, right? Like, I mean, my dumb answer is yes. Am I wrong? (laughs) Right. Well, uh, 
some evidence that would support that answer includes yeah. that they SoFi has a bank charter, yeah, which that's a allows big one. SoFi to access deposit insurance mm-hmm. um, and gives them land- lending permissions and payment abilities. So by this definition, SoFi is a bank. The other question that I think might influence this answer is, does SoFi make most of their money from banking activities that come from its charter privileges? Mm-hmm. And the answer there, as far as I can tell, is also yes. Now- Lending, lending money, right? Yeah. Yes. For most banks, they tend to make money by interest income. And so, you know, something that I think, and something I actually want to talk to you about since you dabble as a bank analyst now is, you know, banks tend to, there's 4,000 banks, 300 of them are public. They actually, they might all be a little different in size and scope, but they actually tend to report earnings in a pretty comparable way using pretty comparable definitions that allow pretty easy comparison across banks. And so they report things like net interest income, which is the revenue they make from lending, and mm-hmm. then not lending, which is not interest income. They pay one of their large expenses is the money they pay on or interest they pay on deposits, which is called their interest expense, and mm-hmm. other expenses called non-interest expense. You can see where I'm going with this. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> there are Makes so sense. many very specific ways that bank earnings are reported. And it's just one of the best things about being a bank reporter is there's a lot of banks, but they're all kind of going to use the same vocabulary set, except SoFi. So SoFi mm. uses non what I would consider non-traditional bank performance metrics or earnings metrics like EBITDA, which is earning before earnings before interest, taxes. Ooh, is it is this debts? And then and adjustments. I don't know. I don't know what EBITDA stands for anymore because I haven't had to think <laughs> about what EBITDA stands for in 10 years. Right. They also report a lot of adjusted revenues and adjusted income. Yeah. And then it's actually like so hard. Th- this is so confusing to me, a bank reporter, to figure out if like SoFi makes money, like if they are turning a profit because mm. they're using what I would call like the non-standard bank metrics. So, you know, Alex coming, so I'm on one side, I'm trying to, I guess, dabble on the other side. For you, you know, is it hard for you to understand bank earnings now that you kind of do quarterly check-ins and are exposed to the vocab set? Yeah, no, not really. I mean, it's fairly straightforward. There are definitely some things that are a little bit tricky. I would say the thing that kind of tricks me up the most, and you and I talk about this a lot, both on the podcast and not, is the like allowances and you know things that banks have to do more from like a regulatory and capital management perspective yeah. Th- those things capital's tend to weird. kind of yeah it's capital's not really weird earnings, though. Like, right just kind of right yeah it kind of <laughs> yeah it's like sometimes. it's related but you have to kind of like yeah screen out like a part of the balance sheet so that part i'm still kind of learning but no the earnings stuff i think is pretty straightforward as you laid out i mean there are these big buckets that are pretty standard and they that you can kind of use them as shorthand for understanding like oh you know i mean your interest expense went up well that means you're paying more for deposits like that's pretty simple like we can understand what that means and then if i'm a bank analyst on one of these calls and that'll be the highlight of my amateur bank analyst careers sneaking onto one of these calls and asking a question but like then you can ask a question like well, what's driving the increase in deposits? You know, like what's driving that? And you can like drill into that. But I think the problem as you lay out with the SoFi one is, and I come from more of a fintech background, not a bank background. And in fintech land, metrics are very bespoke, I guess is the way I would put it, right? Like if you pick on whatever non-bank public fintech company you want, whether it's PayPal or a firm or whomever, you know, Moneylion, like, they all have their own 
bespoke way of reporting their metrics. And it's almost one of those things where like they get their analysts that study their stock and make recommendations mm-hmm. to investors to kind of get on board with the metrics they use. And then it doesn't matter if anyone else understands them at all. And so there's so, like very little comparability between, I mean, I, it kind of makes none, sense for fintechs really? because right. there's not like a bunch, like five fintechs that do the same thing the way that there's like uh, 300 banks that do the same thing. Exactly, right? exactly. Well, and then fintech companies have used so many different levers to try to get to profitability that it would be really hard to standardize. And so they mm. end up with these sort of tricky accounting things that they do. And like, to me, one of my favorite things, and I think you have some specific examples in here, but like the word adjusted does so much work oh, in it's, these it's things. carrying a lot of weight. It carries all the weight, right? Because it's like, you know, I mean, like, to use a joke that's going to hit a little close to home for me, being a father of three, hasn't been able to work out as much as I would ideally want to. Like if I reported my weight as like pounds adjusted, like (laughs) I could do whatever I wanted with that, right? Like I could be like, I'm a trim 175 pounds adjusted weight, you know, like that would be stupid. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) right, right. But like, that's, I mean, not to be too uncharitable to SoFi, but like that's what they're doing when they talk about some of these things. I'll let you give yeah. me the the well, specific metric that drove me crazy. I think what's crazy. so interesting, so I'm going to say a bunch of things that were in the earnings report that I don't know what that means. So they reported from in third quarter earnings, 111 million of incremental adjusted net revenue from non-lending segments, which includes their financial services segment, is... And so, like, I even have a note in here, like, is the word incremental another word for quarterly? Like, <laughs> is this, like, quarterly adjusted revenue? They cited something called the contribution margin using lended adjusting net revenue. And I don't think I've ever seen those words strung together in that order. And I don't know what a contribution margin is. Mm. Someone, And so when I was researching this story, you can or this piece, you can actually tell exactly when I was doing it because I had to ask the SoFi Twitter bros for help. And I used Your favorite people, your favorite card. people. Yeah. Do you, so you use the, the cash tag for SoFi and they yeah. just, they, it's like the bat and signal I, for SoFi I, bros. I like ask, like, and I think it's hard because I actually have a lot of bias. I think SoFi should knock this off. But yeah. I asked like why they don't think SoFi reports as a bank. Um, mm. And so someone had to explain what contribution margin is. If I mm. tell you what it is, it will not help you understand SoFi's earnings because SoFi is a bank and they should report <laughs> their earnings right. as a bank. And so, you know, Mikulas picked up on this too when he did his little analysis of their earnings. You know, he says, you know, there's a desire to paint these in a better light. But I just, when I think about the SoFi bros, so the SoFi bros are like a group of people on Twitter who are SoFi enthusiasts and they talk to each other on Twitter about how much they love SoFi. SoFi Um, stockholders. Yeah, stockholders. They're not people like me who are a customer and a student loan borrower and we're mad at SoFi. So when someone says something that might destroy any value of the value mm-hmm. of SoFi and drag their stock down, they have to come after them. Yep. So I have crossed paths with some of these people before, but I was just kind of, I asked these guys why they think that SoFi doesn't report earnings as a bank, even though they make most of their money from a, being a bank. And also <laughs> someone was talking about unlocking alpha from SoFi. And I was honestly like, yeah, is it because they're bringing in a bunch of insured cheap deposits and they can get rid of their warehouse funding? Mm. Probably where the alpha comes from. Big um, source of alpha. Yeah. It's a big source of alpha. We call that net interest margin. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, and so I don't know, and it's hard to take it seriously 
when they're like, you know, SoFi is a next gen financial services company. And it's like, I don't know, man, they're just like taking in deposits and lending them out. They're not like rebuilding the wheel here. They're even like, you know, they're selling Galileo products or services to other banks. Well, we call that a fee business line (laughs) in banking. Right. You know, like, I just think it's really interesting that mega banks like JP Morgan, Chase, or like European, you know, international banks like mm-hmm. that report that have holding companies in the United States, they can all follow the same playbook. And it allows us to just have an understanding of, is this bank like being a good bank? Are they making money on the loans? Are their deposits cheap? Are their loan losses low, right? Like mm-hmm. all of these ways that we think about banking. So someone, a nice SoFi bro, so shout out data-driven investing, shared with me that SoFi as a company might be going through a transition in identities from being a non-bank to being a bank. So before they were a non-bank, using bank metrics maybe didn't make sense. Mm. And especially if they were like selling all of their loans or like securitizing their loans, Mm. it doesn't really make sense to use bank metrics if you're not holding your loans to maturity Mm. and then rolling them off and using it to make more loans. Maybe you don't care as much about credit quality unless there's like putbacks. And so as SoFi gathers more deposits to cover more of its loan book Mm -hmm. and can get rid of some of its wholesale funding as they maybe move from a warehousing model to a hold to maturity model, you know, and they eat their own cooking, as we say in banking, it might make more sense for them to shift their earnings. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that makes sense. Someone else pointed out to me, and I think they pointed this out as like a good thing, but they said that SoFi's 10K is like longer than Bank of America's, like by 50 pages. So Whoa. Bank of America's is by like 100 pages. SoFi's is 150 pages. I would argue that doesn't mean it's a good thing. That actually means probably there's some redundancy, complexity, over-explanation, right? Like That's if you, insane. Isn't that crazy? And, yeah. and like that is prepared on a quarterly basis and it's, someone's job. <laughs> so Multiple someone's probably. Yeah. yeah. And I find this resistance to using these ready-made, perfectly comparable metrics really interesting. <laughs> the other thing is that I wonder if SoFi, it is important to SoFi to be seen as not a bank by the investing public so that they can get the bank valuation or the not bank valuations and they can benefit from the fintech valuations, which I believe have come down, but are still probably higher than banks. And so they and they would probably want to be valued on an earnings basis, not an intangible book value basis. So those are the two theories that I thought were most compelling. I don't think they're I think like I like SoFi. I think they're one of the most interesting banks in banking, Mm -hmm. but I don't think they're a next gen financial services company that deserves its own weird set of metrics. And I want someone to like on a quarterly basis break apart their earnings and then put them under normal bank earnings so I can understand them. Well, I that would be a, that or something. That would, I, yeah, I mean generative AI. I like to step to the plate here. Um, no, I agree. I mean, I think the uh, the only other thing I would add on top of that is I do think that in the case of SoFi, like when they talk about being like a next gen financial services company, right? I mean, that's just you know bluster. And I I am a little surprised, honestly. That and maybe they just maybe they can't make this transition or they don't want to. But fintech valuations are not really what they used to be. Like yeah. they're really not. I mean, like yeah. like the, some of the best performing stocks, not necessarily in terms of the highs, but just in terms of like kind of chugging along, are well performing banks, right? Because people know how to value them. It's not right. particularly <laughs> volatile, right? I mean, like it's it's easy to compare. And, you know, I would think, and, and I've seen this a lot in fintech recently, right? Like we saw to give a, a non 
bank example, you know, when Ajian lost like 40% of its value a few months ago, because they had like one bad thing that they reported, mm-hmm. like that's a huge problem for your company, right? Like when yeah. you, you lose that much value in a single day, you have to completely reorient how you run your business, your hiring plans, your sort of retention and attrition plans, like everything about your company changes on a dime when you lose that much value. And that can happen when you're building your valuation based on a tech forward multiple Mm -hmm. and trying to get investors to value you beyond sort of your tangible book value. I would kind of think, and maybe this is like a rant for another day, but like Maybe fintech companies that actually do make the magical jump to being a bank. So this is the lending clubs and so yeah, the, and the others three of, of the them. World. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the ones that have made it, like just embrace being a bank. Like you're going to have a nice, stable valuation. It's not going to fly up and down in crazy ways. You're not going to have to like bend over backwards to think of some clever story that you can tell every quarter to get investors excited. You know, your executives can spend less time doing press and more actually like running the business. Like. It could be like a better, more stable way to build value for your customers rather than like being on this merry-go-round. So I don't know. The whole thing seems really, really strange to me. And then the last thing on SoFi is I would love to get someone in a senior position at SoFi to take truth serum and tell me how the Galileo thing is going. Because that was always really weird. And it's like, if you look at their business as different business lines, it's the one that doesn't really fit. It it was getting a little bit long in the tooth relative to some of its newer competitors at the time it was bought. Mm -hmm. It has a few very large sort of legacy customers that are using it. But I don't know that I've seen a lot of evidence of like new growth, at least in the US. I think they've been trying to expand internationally. So I don't know if that whole, they at one point referred to it as like the AWS of financial services. And like, I don't think that's true. And I don't know that that strategy is going all that well. So probably didn't show up in the earnings, but that's the sort of black hole that I can't see that I wish I could. Yeah, I do actually think SoFi has kind of embraced being a bank with, you know, the funding. All the good parts. They bought a, I think they bought like a mortgage company. And, you know, I think that's in this high rate environment, that's one of the biggest drivers of their company is the bank parts. It is just really interesting to kind of be a bank in everything, but in like kind of name. So it'll be interesting to see how the company goes forward. And yeah, whether they even do keep like Galileo, a lot of, I know that this is a little different. They're also a lot bigger than most banks, but a lot of banks that have at one time owned a fintech have decided to spin that fintech out sometimes because Mm -hmm. the expense structure, the attention, you know, whether or not they need to hold capital against it, things like that has been, you know, too expensive for a bank. So it is kind of interesting to wonder. I but again, we'll see. I just I just want them to report earnings like a normal bank because they I hate to break it to them, they are a bank. Yes, yes. But welcome. Well, it's not um, that bad to be a bank. It's no it's right fine. now, right now be, rather be a bank than a fintech, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Come on in. The waters are the waters yeah. are warm. All right, can I give you one last super quick one? Totally. All right. So you may have seen the word achievement popping up a lot lately. Question. So I knew about achievement before it was cool, but I, so then it was like delightful to be like, well, why do you know about achievement? <laughs> That's a question you were probably asking specifically about me, who became sort of obsessed with achievement after not knowing what it was at all. And the reason I know about it is that it's finally sort of 
popped up. It's a very obscure legal process. To give the quick definition, it's the legal process of transferring unclaimed property to the state when the rightful owner cannot be found. Most types of financial accounts are considered to be inactive after a certain amount of no activity from the customer. So say 12 months of no activity, no transactions, no logging into your account. Then, depending on the specific account type and the state, the inactive accounts will be converted to dormant accounts. And that basically starts a three to five year clock where dormant accounts that still do not have any activity and they do not respond to any of the attempts by the financial institution to reach the owners or notify them that their accounts are dormant and that their property may be turned over to the state. If they don't act, then the property ends up after that period actually getting transferred over to the state. It's really just kind of a big compliance headache for banks, essentially. It's an exercise that they have to go through. Usually, it's a twice a year sort of fall and spring exercise where they have to update their list of accounts. They have to do reporting to the different states. All the requirements on a state-by-state basis are a little bit different. The reason that it is popping up, Kia Hazlitt, is that we are headed into a period of significantly more achievement than we've seen in the past. And the reason for that is that if you use that three to five year timeline, well, if you rewind three to five years ago, so 2018 to 2022, that, as we know, was a period of great growth uh, on the part of a lot of B2C fintech companies. So a lot of fintech companies in the ZERP era were out you know, paying for Google ads and getting consumers excited and signing up consumers for accounts. And you may be shocked to know, but a lot of those accounts have gone dormant. A lot of those accounts were actually never even used, oh, but they no. were opened up. Yes. And I think in particular, one group of companies that didn't anticipate this problem were all of the banking as a service banks that were partnering with these fintech companies who have the responsibility to manage that achievement process Mm -hmm. for any dormant accounts, including dormant accounts that sit in FBO accounts from their various fintech partners. And if you know anything about banking as a service or FBO accounts, you'll know it's not the easiest thing in the world to parse all of the sub accounts in an FBO Mm -hmm. account and figure out if you're a partner bank well, which ones of these are inactive? Which ones of these have had transactions? We don't even control or touch any of the front-end infrastructure for the mobile app or any of the other channels that a customer might use. So we can't even see when was the last time they logged in. So it's kind of created this achievement nightmare for community banks that have partnered with fintech companies. And the reason that it popped up on my radar was that Current, which is one of the many neobanks out there, sent me a notice that they were going to be introducing an achievement fee of $30, the purpose of which was essentially to wipe out a large portion of their dormant accounts. Yeah, so Uh, they just debit it from the account. Exactly. And if the account is $30 or less, if that's the total balance, it just wipes the accounts to zero. And so essentially, it removes those accounts from having to go through the achievement process, which is more expensive than Mm -hmm. just closing them, right? And so Current has started doing that. I've heard of many other fintech companies getting pressure from their partner banks to go through a similar exercise to kind of clean stuff up so that they can manage this process. But 
this is going to be the next couple of years. I called it in a piece I wrote the one of the fintech hangovers that we're dealing with yeah. right now. So, I mean, you've known about Achievement for well before I did. How did it? Okay, pop I don't want to say radar? well before. I heard about it in a Planet Money podcast, and it was just—it's like an old legal term for property rights. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And the process by which the state can reclaim property. I was actually I. It's and you know I have a story I guess about this, but. I was familiar with it because of like, if you think about like paychecks that people like yeah. maybe just don't pick up their last paycheck. So that's an, a really common example for where I was in my point in life was, yeah. you know, just moving around a lot and, you know, not showing up or not collecting my last check at an hourly job or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so it is really funny that this thing that's kind of like old wonky state property tax has come up for banking as a service. It seems like the opposite of innovative. I can't believe like it wasn't maybe part of the banking as a service. You know, if you think about the life cycle of some of these relationships, you kind of have to plan for things like abandoned accounts. You probably need to... Well, and fintech you know, <laughs> companies don't like to think about bad things. Like they don't think about bad things. Like, like banks, we need a business like, right, continuity if, if plan, you know, like, no, I don't need about that. X amount more customers than your banking as a service partner, that would translate into probably Y amount more (laughs) achievement. Totally. Totally. uh, Well, honestly, it would would, would account for even more than you would think. Y would be bigger because these fintech companies are great at acquiring. They didn't turn out to be so good at like utilization and growth and retention. Like those things didn't happen as much. The acquisition was what happened. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then... Like my thing is, so I have to do what the Planet Money podcast did when I listened to it, which is to encourage all the listeners to figure out if they have funds or property in a sheetment. So don't just wait till current says, you know, we're going to deduct 30 bucks from your account that you forgot about three years ago. Public service announcement. Here we go. (laughs) Yeah. Public service announcement. Go to missingmoney.com, which Mm. is run by all of the states that have achievement laws in partnership with the National Association of Unclaimed Property Administrators. You can put your name into a search database and then it tells you how you can go about claiming your property. It's not like one and done clicks. You, I found out that I have some unclaimed property that's worth less than $250 in Nebraska. And so yesterday I started the process of reclaiming my (laughs) unclaimed property and I could hopefully have an update the next time we, the next time we do this podcast. Alex, have you had funds sheeted? Are you in the process of reclaiming all the $5 you contributed to all these little neobanks? So I always think of Jason Mikula in this respect because he's the king of this. But I have quite a few fintech accounts that have little to no money in them. Uh, And so I am sure that I have been sheeted. I'm positive that that has happened to me. And, you know, I've contributed, I guess, to the state of Montana's uh, highway fund or whatever it is Mm -hmm. that the money goes to. And I'm now going to go to missingmoney.com and put in my information to find out what else I may be I, I will say uh, in that, the like, process of being owed. Yeah. The other you have to use your like phone number or sorry, your not your phone number, your birth date and maybe your social security number, which is good because I'm sure there's as we've talked about, there's many Alex Johnsons in the world. And so you gotta there make are. sure you're getting your Alex Johnson abandoned funds and not some other Alex Johnson. I mean, that would also be a pretty fun scam. It would. It would. I was just going to say, yeah, I mean, the the fraud angle here is kind of interesting. The other thing I think, Kia, we should make as a goal for ourselves is 
we should try really hard to get whoever's in charge of the National Association of Unclaimed Property Administrators to come on the podcast as a guest and just ask every them crazy state has questions one, about Ashima. Like it's, I think it's in the Treasury Department of every state. They have an unclaimed administrator. And if you go back and listen to the 2020 Planet Money episode, I believe they talked to the Massachusetts person really? who like you know, she like promotes this stuff all the time. She tries to return the property. She tries to get people their money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I I heard of a story that um, there was a guy who had uh, stock. And I think it depends on the type of financial account in terms of how long these periods are. And generally, like investment products are a little different than other types of financial products. But for whatever reason, this person had some shares of stock. It actually might have been a safety deposit box, actually. So it might have actually been like physical shares of stock way back in the day. But it was for Apple. And he was escheated without his knowledge because I guess he moved or they couldn't get in contact with him. And the the bank turned over like $120 million in Apple stock that he had bought years and years ago and had just hung on to. So oh, there incredible. are some there are some horror stories with escheatment, but we will leave that one there. Kia, I am going to call a little audible here because okay. we have made it a goal to try to keep this a tight <laughs> podcast today. So... You know, people come to this podcast for the rants. That's why they come. And so uh, we're going to skip this next one and we're going to jump right to our possibly unanswerable question. And if you don't mind, (sighs) can I ask you the question? Sure. Okay. So I'm going to ask you the question. Uh, We're going to flip the outline around a little bit here. But Kia, I know you have thoughts on this. Why do fintech founders believe that they can solve all the world's problems. Why does this industry have a savior complex? This is something that I've noticed as someone who considers herself a little bit of a fintech outsider is I will you know, come across fintechs, I will come across founders, I will come across newsletters, and they will assume a premise that fintech can solve this. And I have seen this pop up in a lot of different ways, like gender pay equality. I have seen it um, pop up with things like home ownership, financial inclusion. And I think those are admirable goals. But I also think that those are what we call like wicked problems or complex socio-technology problems. And that fintech should maybe relieve itself of the burden of solving for world peace and maybe set its sights a little lower. Um, so so and, what is a wicked problem? Define that for yeah, us. Yeah, a wicked problem. Let me pull up the definition specifically. So a wicked problem is a social or cultural problem that's difficult or impossible to solve because of its complex and interconnected nature. Hmm. Wicked problems lack clarity in both their aims and in solutions and are subject to real world constraints constraints that hinder risk-free attempts to find a solution. And so this can look like, it can look like, and I like, I kind of hate to use this example because it's so cringe, but it's like, it can be like, why do, you know, certain countries that are less socioeconomically developed, why can't their like girls just attend school or why don't they have wells? And then someone comes in and just like immediately like attempts to solve the problem by maybe building a well or by building a school without really understanding some of the social, economic, cultural factors at play that have mm-hmm. contributed to the problem being evidenced as the problem that they're solving. Mm-hmm. So, you know, social complex socio-technical systems are difficult to find. They are complex. They're difficult to know how to approach and they're difficult to know whether a solution has worked. And so I kind of think about this framework when I see 
you know, even the assumption underpinning some of these, like, well, fintech can solve this and it will solve it by X. And I always kind of find that, you know, to me, that's kind of lacking and it's not serious and it hasn't, it doesn't always seem to like solve the problem. I'm going to bring up an example that we previously talked about. So, you know, SoFi has not fixed student lending. It hasn't fixed how much it costs to go to college. It hasn't fixed that kids go to college without, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to finance their education. It hasn't fixed that college costs hundreds of thousand dollars. It hasn't fixed the mechanic that we used to finance college for most people that don't have enough scholarships or grants, which is loans. It just changed some of the, they kind of figured out who they can make certain types of loans to, to fix the actual end of the problem, which is, you know, people graduate from school with lots and lots of debt that they can't pay off. And that that is often at the payments do not reflect the reality of, you know, being an early college graduate and not making very much money and being early in your career. So it's like, you know, I think even to think about that example and the quote unquote solution that is available in the market to me, just, you know, it just can't, right? Like you you can't say you fixed, you kind of helped, but I think, you know, there are many problems that come from like late being in late stage capitalism and that require an overhaul of the system themselves to be truly fixed to not have the problem exist anymore if and so for me you know if, if you aren't focused on new systems you can't it feels like you can't create meaningful change or equity or wealth you're just really going to replicate <laughs> the same systems with smaller alterations Mm -hmm. um, or insert yourself in the process and just make some money off of the skim. Mm -hmm. And so I I think about like, I've ranted to you about this. Um, I've (laughs) ranted to a couple of other people. It's sometimes really difficult for me who is kind of a cynic and also believes that most things are hard. Most problems are hard, especially when they involve people's money or the economy that you can't just come insert yourself and be like, oh, we solved it. We figured actually the full problem. It was actually this little like, crack right here. We're just going to repair the crack and everything's going to work as it should. So Alex, I mean, I don't know if I've completely rained on your parade. I don't know. Hopefully I'm not breaking any problem news to you that um, problems are hard. So no, no. I mean, I, you're not raining on my parade. I'm a little bit of a fintech outsider as well. It's one of my, okay. uh, one I feel of like my you're the most insider person I know. And so, oh, it's really? so funny you think of yourself as an outsider. That's so funny. Well, I mean, I mean you're not like there's... Elon Musk, but like, well, you know. I mean, no, I, I am probably much more of an insider than I used to be, but I do. I mean, I, I value things like living in Montana, you know, sure. and not like there, there are things that make me very non fintechy, and I have conflicts occasionally with founders around some of these things where it's like, I don't really see it that way. But it, it is useful to try to maintain at least a little bit of an external perspective on this, because I think you bring up a really good point, right? I mean, one of the challenges with fintech, I think generally is there's this sort of desire to frame whatever it is you're doing as being sort of life-changingly great. And I think this is a tech problem generally, not a fintech problem specifically. But, you know, you kind of look back to like Steve Jobs when he's talking about like, this is the most important thing that's happened in the 20th century, you know, and it's, yeah, and it's like, it's like a, it's like a Macintosh computer. It's like, okay, I don't really think it is, you know, and it's like, there's a grandiosity that is sort of formed around the tech industry that I think, honestly, like, if, again, if you were to give people truth serum, what they would probably tell you is we kind of have to sell ourselves that way, even if it's not true, because that's mm-hmm. what, like, attracts talent and gets people excited, right? Like, yeah. if you work in Silicon Valley, you can make 
millions of dollars doing all kinds of different things. Like we need to frame to people that they're using their intelligence and ambition in a way that's good for the world. And so I think tech in general, and fintech is not at all immune to this, has this tendency to sort of attach grandiose missions and visions to relatively mundane or relatively small problems that they're fixing. But not even that, relatively entrenched problems, historic problems. Well, and I think that's the other part. I think that's, uh, yeah, no, totally. And I think that's the other part. And I think this gets into fintech a little more specifically is when you talk about like, okay, so what are some of the problems we can solve? Well, a lot of the like most entrenched, difficult to solve problems, and I've talked about this a lot in my newsletter, like they can all relate back to money, right? Like the thing yeah. that's kind of beautiful and also frustrating about fintech is it has a theoretical in to almost any problem that you could care to try to chip away at solving. Because money, money is involved in pretty much every problem. Lack of money, too much money, money not working well, whatever. And so I think that's a huge part of the problem. But I also think, kind of to your point, There are just things that like, and, and, you know, I try not to rant about this too much, but like the Forbes 30 for 30 list was just announced the new one today. And it's a very tech sort of centric way of looking at the world because it's people under the age of 30, right? And I, I talk to lots of fintech founders who are young, this is their first company, or this is their first company that they founded, sometimes their first job overall. And there is a very understandable, but sometimes still very frustrating lack of like context or understanding about the problem they're trying to solve. Mm -hmm. And it comes in a few different flavors, right? So one is the sort of macroeconomic societal part of it, which is, okay, like using housing as an example, you brought that one up, like, what's the problem with people not being able to buy houses? We don't build enough houses. That's the problem. (laughs) And like everything else is downstream of that. And if you build an application that makes it slightly more efficient to underwrite mortgage applications, that's great, but it really doesn't fix that problem at all. Like mm-hmm. it, it, it shaves the tiniest little bit off of that problem, but the problem itself remains and gets bigger. And the answer is you have to go to those annoying town hall meetings where all of the NIMBYs are, and right. you have to shame them into not going to those until they just shut the fuck up and let us <laughs> actually build more housing. That's how you solve that problem. Yeah. And it has nothing to do with fintech or tech or fintech. mobile applications or VC dollars or anything. Mm-hmm. So I think that's part of it. And then I think the other part of it is, and I, I'm enormously frustrated by this at all times, but there's very much of an assumption of like, well, banks must be stupid. Like if this problem's not being solved and there's a role for financial services, yeah, like banks just aren't solving it or they're too stupid to solve it or whatever. And, you know, I think I talked about this or I I tweeted about this as it relates to like the credit card industry, just as an example. Like if you think you're going to go into the credit card space and just go head to head for prime and super prime rewards hungry customers against Mm -hmm. Chase and American Express and Capital One, like you are walking into a world of hurt that you do not understand, right? Like they are enormously smart and incredibly calculated and incredibly savvy about the way that they try to win that market and control that market. It's not for the faint of heart. You have to know what you're doing to even stand a chance in that market. And I see that kind of thinking everywhere in fintech where it's like, oh, well, you know, banks probably don't know what they're doing here, but I can do it better. And, Mm -hmm. you know, First of all, banks probably can't solve this problem any more than you can because it's a larger societal complex problem that has nothing to do with financial services. It's a wicked but problem. to the extent that financial services can help with this, don't assume that you're going to do it any better than banks that maybe right. have already tried or have already nibbled around that area because 
there is no problem in financial services that banks haven't looked at and mm. have some pretty smart people working on. So going into it with a certain amount of humility about the size of the problem and what yeah. your contribution to it would be a nice thing to see. I totally agree. Yeah. I don't think there's anything wrong with incrementalism. And no, also, it's how a lot you know, of problems are solved. design, but just God, please stop trying to fix Simmer every down. single complicated problem with a Simmer fintech, down. Or, or, with or at least... At least if you're going to frame it as like, we want to be a small contribution mm -hmm. to solving a like very a large better. problem. Yeah. Right, right, right. I, I like that way of framing it a bit better. Okay, so um, that was an excellent rant. I want to give you a chance to rant about one last thing. Okay. This is our Kia go off segment. So Kia, just go off on something. Okay. Well, my first question for you, Alex, is mm. if you had to guess what the national average rate for a 12-month CD is, what would you guess that rate is? 12-month CD... The average I, rate across the nation. I don't know. Six percent. Would you believe that last that this week, according to the FDIC, it mm. was one point eight percent? No. <laughs> okay, that is the FDIC maintains what's called the national rate cap. Okay, it is the a survey of the national average rate charged mm. on certain types of deposit products, including savings, checking. Money market and one to uh, CDs at regular intervals, and that's my okay. rant today. Is the FDIC has fixed the national rate cap, and so <laughs> banks should stop gaming the national rate cap, which they are still doing. Allow me to explain. Okay. So before in 2019, the FDIC fixed the national rate cap, as I said mm -hmm. before. Mm -hmm. This was the national rate cap is a survey of the average rate that banks across the country charge on different products. Yeah. It is weighted by branches. So it has an overrepresentation by large banks. And mm. what was happening in 2019, if I, I don't know if you remember, but interest rates were at 3%, and which meant that the treasury was also at 3%. And banks can offer interest rates on products at whatever percentage they want. But if you are a troubled bank, you are under rate restrictions. And that's where the rate cap comes from. And that's why okay. they calculate this survey. It's the national rate plus 75 basis points. And the, and the thinking on that, just to make sure I'm clear on it, is yeah. if you're a troubled bank, we don't want you going out there and using high rate CDs to bring to in bring a bunch in of money. hot deposits and then do crazy shit. Mm -hmm. okay. Yes. So, but the other thing too is like examiners will use this to say like, oh, you're offering high rates. Remember, like even a healthy bank offering high totally. rates and using rates to attract money back before the banking crisis, this was mm -hmm. seen as hot money. It was rate seeking money mm -hmm. and it was money that you would have to pay a lot of money to keep. Mm -hmm. um, these are not like quote unquote real relationships, yeah. but that's fine when interest rates are zero. And so the treasury rate is very similar to the rate on CDs. But what was happening is that the treasury rate in 2019 was at 3% and banks were still reporting this these regular intervals to be really low because what they actually do, and I'm sure you'll see this now that I'm pointing it out to you, mm. is they do CD specials and they do it on non non-interval, regular intervals. So instead of a mm. six-month CD, which gets reported into the national rate cap, they'll do it on a seventh-month CD. Instead of a 12-month oh. CD that gets reported into the national rate cap, they'll offer the special on a 13th-month CD. That's so interesting because I was, I did wonder at some point when I was looking at like CD pricing, like what's with all these weird terms? Like intervals, why is it eight yeah. months? That's so weird. Right. Okay, uh-huh. That's why it's eight months. Mm. And, and Tricky. so that's called the special. So that's like the CD special. The regular CDs are just... So if you like... And I don't know because I don't 
run this survey, if I just mm. looked up a random bank's website, do is the eighth month CD like three or four or five percent higher right. than the six month CD, the way that the national rate cap indicates. So, and so so the 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 approach from the bank's perspective was we want to keep this rate cap as low as possible. Well, someone wants to keep it as low as possible. Sure. Possibly the biggest banks. They for what okay, so in 2019, the FDIC fixes this problem and okay. they say, you know what? If CDs are similar to treasuries, we will include the going treasury rate that is comparable to the CD rate. So now mm. there's two rate cap numbers. Mm. Either it's the national rate cap for the for like let's say a 12 month CD, sure, or it is a 12 month treasury bond is paying. And so, so they can't banks, get too far away from each other. Well, yeah. And so banks, but, or like, you know, banks aren't like, hey, you're start going to have a liquidity crisis because I'm under a rate cap, but, you know, the safest asset in the world is paying like 6% or whatever. Mm. And so banks, so the FTC fixed this. And so now a bank can offer a 12 month CD at whatever the national rate cap is, or what the FET, FTIC said a, the adjusted rate yield was, which is 7.28%. So there is no reason why there should be a big delta between the reported CD for nationally, the national average, yeah. and the treasury. But there is, and this has persisted, and I don't know why <laughs> it's happening still. And I like, I lost this like kind of argument with my editor because she was talking about like, she was talking about like average CD prices are really high. And I was like, that is verifiably not true. It's not based true. Based yeah. on the FDIC. But I think it's so interesting because she was true. To, she was correct too. Mm. Because we all know that CD prices are high sure. generally. But if I was going to walk into a bank and they were like, hey, do you want to do a 12 month at 1.85% or do you want to do a 13 month at like 5%? <laughs> I, like right. not, that's not even a, a question I have in my head, right? I'm not sitting around being like 12% or 12 months, 13 months. But banks do this and they're doing it every single week. And this is Weird. so annoying. And they should just <laughs> stop doing it. They yeah, should just no. stop doing it. Just collapse the prices. Totally. It's still happening. It was happening when you were looking at it today. Or like whatever, that, like recently. That is so weird. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, I definitely noticed that it's really, really strange. And it's one of those things where it's like, trying to think of other examples, but it's like people get used to gaming a system and then the system changes, but their gaming behavior doesn't <laughs> yeah, change. Yeah, they can't right? stop. They're, they're just they can't like, stop no. They a little like, cheating. Like, yeah, they're like, this is what I do. This is how I do my job. So that is a really, really good example. And I'll tell you, anything that happens that relates to like, numbers being reported and chicanery around that is just going to set Kia off. So if you're looking for like <laughs> advice on like not making Kia angry, anything that's do you like think that, do you even numbers think that or data. As many Wells Fargo branches should count as one in this, oh, in this survey. Seriously. <laughs> like, seriously. That kind of like overweighting influence is, is wild because like it's crazy. You know, the biggest banks have the best cost of funds pricing. Yeah. And so they need to pay the least amount. So it is just, it's not it's, like yeah. a big problem for like liquidity. Like the treasury cap, the treasury's in there. The rate is now fine. Like the national rate cap sure. is a market-based rate. In 2019, yeah. it was not a market-based rate. 
So they fixed, they fixed the liquidity about, part of it is, but the, just they the, fixed the, liquidity the nonsense is what you're what ranting I am about. still like, I am so mad that banks are still getting these, these this people, <laughs> whoever like, these like serious. Wells Fargo, these like Wells Fargo deposit CD pricing people who are working in some back office somewhere, just like earning your ire right now. Does it, isn't it more annoying for your website to have like regular CD prices that are low and then specials that are really high? It should be. Or like, or a customer service person who's dealing with a customer and they're like, yeah, I want a CD. They're like, yeah, do you want the 12 month or the 13 month? They're like, is there a difference? They're like, oh, there's a difference. (laughs) There's a big, big difference. It's a good thing you asked that question because there is a difference. Kia, I have one more little surprise segment that I didn't tell you about. But listeners of this podcast may know that on our last podcast, I uncovered a very disturbing fact, which is that Kia had (laughs) never seen the movie Groundhog's Day. So welcome to a new recurring segment that I'm just going to surprise Kia with at uncertain intervals, which is, Kia, have you seen this movie? Kia, are you ready for today's segment? Um, Yeah. Are you ready to emotionally react? Well, I've been preparing all day. So um, this is a very relevant one because this is our December show. And this is both relevant because it's December and also relevant because of your job. Kia, have you seen It's a Wonderful Life? Once. (gasps) Okay. I saw it two years ago. I saw it very recently. You saw it very recently. and seen it once. What was and like, I wrote the motiva- a little essay what was about the, it. Well, okay. So I was going to ask, what was like the motivating reason? Uh, that I that? needed to write a topper for the newsletter. <laughs> and, <laughs> I knew it. I knew uh, it had to be something like that. And it's COVID. So. Okay. So you're um, at home. and yeah. yeah. And like, you know, it's kind of heartwarming too. So. Did you like the movie? Because you, you'd, you'd heard the references to it. You're a bank <laughs> reporter. Like you'd heard it a million times. Yeah. I don't. Too old? I don't think I would call, say that I liked it. I was kind of surprised by the suicide ideation, spoiler alert. Two, I was really confused that there is a building association and a bank and that the bank is the (laughs) bad guy. You you are the only person who would be confused by that, that truly. That was like, I was like, (laughs) I was like, one... The bank's the bad guy, and every all the bankers are like, "Oh, I love this movie," and I'm like, "But y'all are like the bad guys." You're, you're, and then I also Potter, had to be yeah. like, I then had to be like, "What is a building association?" And I had to look up the history of building associations. I actually there was like a podcast that also explains what a building association was, and <laughs> and then but yes, I did like that there was a bank run, so that was really classic nice. bank I, run, yeah. And I did kind of like the idea that like you know, when he doesn't deposit the money, mm-hmm. the money was doesn't have its financial protections around it. Right. I kind of like that. There's a bank examiner. That's very fun. He sits in there's the vault. There's a bank examiner. So there's yep. a vault. Also love that there's a vault. And I do like that it kind of explains how the fractional reserve banking system works out. Oh. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> that was kind of nice. But I don't know if I like loved it. I okay. don't think I would watch it if I wasn't a bank reporter. I also have seen like Die Hard once as well. Okay. And I wrote last year for the topper that if Die Hard is a Christmas movie, it's also a movie about securities regulation and bearer bonds and how important it is that the, and like, we don't think about financial innovation as being like the blockchain of just being like these like bonds belong to someone. But Mm. the whole movie is about bearer bonds, which don't exist anymore. And I had to look up about bear bonds no so that's a what really good you? point well okay so first of all i'd love it's a wonderful life really? it's not oh it's for like sure so 
song. It's amazing. It's like the best movie ever. I mean, it's like barely Christmas movie. I Kia, no, 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 no. We can't get into this because you're just like so tragically wrong about this. I can't even spend the time to argue this. But no, love it. My feelings about it are probably rooted more in like the emotional tradition of watching it in my house mm. than like sort of my study of it as a movie objectively. So I'll yeah. admit to being a little irrational about it, but totally love it. Sentimental. Um, yeah, I hadn't thought about all of the bank nuances the way you have. Because again, like, because <laughs> I'm so used to watching it as like an eight-year-old, right? And so like, I wasn't thinking about those things when I formed my impressions of the movie. But as you say that, it is a little weird that like the bank examiner and like the cops and everything at the end just sort of like tear up the warrant and all of the things and just sort of like forgive yeah. him. So that was probably not the way that they were supposed to do it technically but again that's like that's not how the know, FDIC does it ah, George <laughs> Bailey had to win he had to win so um you know i mean i think that's fair on the barabons front we should do a whole other diehard thing at some point but it was a real theme in like the 80s and 90s like a lot of like bank heist thief type it's a movies good, it's were it's a good heist instrument well it's sure. great right because it's like they hold their value they appreciate like over time so it'll be yeah, like you know you can a steal bond. a box of barabons and like it's like that's three hundred million dollars or whatever. They're just like, like blank checks that grow in money. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, so they're kind of like the perfect vehicle for like theft. But I do think if they wanted to remake Die Hard, and they shouldn't because it's perfect, but if they wanted to, they could reframe it around crypto and have like cold wallets with okay. cryptocurrency okay. in a vault. I was going to say, wouldn't the blockchain like bust them? No, no, no. You just have okay. like, you have cold wallets with like a seed phrase that you have to get from Nakamoto before you kill him yeah. or whatever. Like there's a way to do it where like, yeah. it could be just about like, oh, I thought you were terrorists, but you're actually just crypto thieves. I so will say that like, you could do that. that would be a really boring movie because it would involve a lot of computers and computers make for bad um, movies, like just typing on a computer. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's why like fair. journalist movies are kind of boring because like, a lot of the work's just done at a computer. Well, we'll have to get into that because I'm sure you've probably seen some journalist movies, but we'll we'll surprise you with another one of those in the future. Yeah. I'm really excited for the ones that I haven't seen. I will take I will do no work to try to no. see more movies. Yeah. yeah. I mean don't don't go out of your way. You probably weren't going to anyway, knowing no, you. No, I but, actually still um, haven't seen Groundhog Day. I thought about it. This is what I'm talking about. This is what I'm talking about. It's amazing. So I, all right. No, um, I actually asked Emily and my colleague Emily, and she has not seen it all the way through either. Ah, <laughs> No, Emily. It's, no, it's, maybe like maybe it's just you that saw this movie. Like I swear it's not. But <laughs> listeners, please like at Kia on Twitter and be like Groundhog's Day is amazing. As is, it's a wonderful Hoodies life. Are fine. It's also stop, Christmas stop movie. Hoodies are fine. Like we need to push back on Kia Hazlitt. Um, that is all the time we have. We did it a little faster than we normally do. So I think we're trending in the right direction. Kia, I, we're gonna pick this up in the new year. So until then, I hope you have a wonderful holiday. Yeah, you too. And we'll see you again soon. All right. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of FinTech Takes. Stay up to date with emerging companies and the latest FinTech trends by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. And if you love FinTech Takes, please tell a friend.